something a little bit different today, and I, I felt led of the Lord to do this. So I'm going to ask you a question, and then I would like you to answer the question. So you all are the, the body of wisdom of our church as led by the Lord. Are you ready? Okay. 
Somebody says to you that it seems like, based on the story of Noah's Ark, that God punished some people and saved Noah, that God's love is conditional. That means you have to do certain things in order to be loved by God. How would you answer that statement? Jason, go. First hand I saw. I'd say that God's love doesn't have any boundaries, and that even if He did you so bad, if you want to be loved, you're not going to be loved by God. Okay? So God is going to love you regardless. Okay? Only date? God concerned, because we're with Noah. God considered Noah a righteous man. God calls up to everyone, and Noah answered. So it's not like Noah was like the one person he picked. Anyone could have got called by God, but Noah chose to listen to God. Amen. That's good. I like that. That's good. Okay, you got one, dude? Here's the last one. God did not, not love all of the people that he slaughtered in the flood. He just punishes those he loves. Oh, that's good. I like that. Okay. All right. Go on to the next one. All right. Someone said, uh, if someone said to you that Christians say that the proof that God exists is in the Bible, and that's the only proof that God exists, or the primary proof that God exists, what would you say in response? Okay. I'd say they're wrong. Okay. Because if you look around in creation, you can see the proof that God exists. It's a good word. Okay. times when it was hopeless. It was completely, it had to be God. And it was. God exists because he's real to me. And he's real to me. And his word is real to me. He's real. Amen. Amen. Okay, you got something? We'll go one more. Go ahead. That's a lot. Yeah. Somebody, oh, you got something? Yeah, right, go. Where does morality come from? How do we know for sure, like, what's right, what's wrong? You know, like, who's okay to lie, who's not okay to lie, where does all that come from? Yeah, and that's being undermined in the world today, too. Yeah, especially by those who don't believe in God. Okay? Um, so, somebody give me, if you're, you're talking to somebody, for example, you're going to the grocery store line, and they relate a problem that they have in their life, and they say, this is what my life is like. They don't know God. They're not a Christian. They don't profess to know God. And they say, this is what my life is like, and they're telling you how bad their problem is. If that was your problem before you were saved, and now God has fixed it, what is that problem, and what did God do to fix it? Um, I can't remember this address, but... Um, when we have trouble, God comforts us so we can help people. Mm -hmm. So I would pray and ask the Lord for the scripture. And maybe give them a little of my testimony. I couldn't give them the whole thing. Sure. Because we went at that time. But just to have communication and the love of Christ. Yeah. Right. 
I think too often, I heard, I had one uh, lady say to me, she said, um, the problem in the world today is that when people see other people have problems, they assume automatically that all those problems that they have were caused by that person. The poor are poor because of what they do. The sick are sick because they caused it. The, the people, people have sinned because they want to have sin like that, and there's no compassion. And so I'm with you completely, all right? So if you were talking to somebody in the grocery store line and they had a problem, I said, this is what my life is, and, the pro- and their problem needs a solution, and you realize it was the same problem that you had previously had, and God fixed it. What is the problem, and what did God do to fix it? Go. I'd say that if you, instead of looking at it as a problem that causes bad, look at the problem and what you learn. Okay. So that is that something God did for you? Yeah. I most of most of the mistakes I've made in my life, I've learned from them, and a lot of them ever since I became a Christian, I've learned that. God is showing me something through that. He's teaching me something. And usually it, it like drastically changes the way I think or the way I feel about something. Okay. A few Sunday school answers and we'll be done. Why do you live where you live? Does anybody think that they live where they live because they saw it, they liked it, they wanted it? Is that why you live where you live? Why do you live where you live? God provided it. Because God said so. Okay. Is that what you're going to say? Oh, so that's because that's what God has planned. That's the place that God plans for us to do stuff. Okay, and why? Why did God put you where you are? Because he knows that in the area that we live in, that we are currently at, there is stuff there that we can help with and that we can do and inspire people to do what we do. Good. Okay. The Bible says in Acts 17, Paul is speaking to uh, the Areopagus, and he says that God orchestrates the days of our lives. He puts, a, puts all the boundaries in place, which is exactly where we are, so that men may search around for him, and then in searching around for him, find that he was never far away in the first place. So you are where you are, because there are people there, and it might be you. So ask yourself, do I follow God? Am I a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I do what Jesus says? Do I love the Lord? Am I saved? Right? And if, and if you have, then realize that there are people that live near you that God put there so that they can look around for him. And in finding him, they'll realize he was never far away in the first place. They may find him in you. Let's pray together, and then we'll worship that God who does all this some more. I saw Brother Tony Tate. Could you lead us in this prayer? And remember, we have tithes and offers coming up. Sure. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the answers that we received. And God, we thank you that, uh, God, if you would answer, just say, I'm God. And I'm God alone. And then your word says you're created. We're created for you and by you. And so, God, we're not just created as just creation itself, God, but also for you, for purpose, for your glory. Um, God, for even the world to see that um, Christians suffer every day because we have your peace, we have your joy. God, we have to deny ourselves. God, there's always, always this um, um, where we have to um, take a step back and let you do what you do. And, and God, the world thinks that they can move, God, just because um, they don't need to take a step back. But the thing is, God, they're already taking a step back because they're without you. So, God, we just thank these tithes and offerings, God, not just here, but all churches that are tithing and offering their gifts, their talents, God, offering whatever they have, God, for your glory. We thank you for your loving and merciful sacrifice at the cross. Of course, you rose again. But before that, God, we had no idea, nor would we ever think that you would rise again and be um, our absolute glorious hope. We thank you for this time, and we thank you for this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
All right, I, I wanted to say something. Uh, I've been reading through the Bible. I'm in Ezekiel right now. And just before the chapter that has the prophecy of the dry bones and all that kind of stuff, uh, talking about the restoration of Israel, which literally was fulfilled in the 1940s after World War II, which is, you, you think of Bible prophecy as being fulfilled in the Old Testament at times, but that was actually fulfilled in the 1940s. Then they watched the news. Um, God's chosen people, nation of Israel, is at war now. They've been attacked, not just by an isolated terrorist event, but they literally were, like their equivalent, our 9 11 just happened, and then hundreds of people are dead. And um, the ramifications of that, we don't know. Jesus told us there would be wars and rumors of wars as the end time approaches. And we don't know when that's going to happen, but it could happen really soon. And so just be aware, pay attention, watch what's going on, be ready. Because if this is, the end is super near, or if it's a decade off, this event still could have worldwide implications for us. So that's just for yourself. I just need to pray for them. But um, it's going to end. Jesus is going to come again. And this stuff's going to going to stop. <laughs> He's going to put an end to it. He's going to get his praise and his glory. And nobody's going to stand in his way. So which side of that do you want to be on? I guess the question. So. Pay attention. You're arriving with the sound of thunder and rain. You're arriving in the car. Of the wind and the waves, you're arriving in the glow of the burning flame. Praise await you at the dark, and the moon comes in the eye. Praise await you in the darkness, and shines in the light. Praise await you in the storm, love and desire. Thank you. 
lost in a windswept land In a sea of shifting sand Fragile flower stands above There in that barren ground Feel like the only one Trying to serve you with all my heart And you'll wonder, wonder Can you last much longer This cloud you under Will it cover you as a passage of scripture that we're about to read, um, and I think I maybe wrote the beginnings of about six sermons, <laughs> um, but the Lord really laid on my heart what we're going to see, and um, and this is the one that makes a lot of sense to me, and it just make, it makes logical sense, and I think God kind of expects that. God is not an illogical or a confusing God. He is very point blank, and, um, and so I believe the word just the way it's written. And we're going to read it together in a moment. Before we do that, I want to share an, an illustration with you. I got this out of a book. This is not my story. It takes place a long time before I was alive. 
the oldest sister of Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster's kind of a famous guy. He was married to John Colby, the wickedest man in the neighborhood in respect to swearing and impiety. Impiety means not having anything to do with God. The news came to Webster of a change, and he went to visit John Colby. On entering the house, he saw a large print Bible opened, which Colby had just been reading. The first question Colby asked Webster was, are you a Christian? And then suggested that both kneel and pray. When the visit was done, Webster told a friend, I would like to hear what enemies of religion say of Colby's conversion. Here was a man as unlikely to be a Christian as any I ever saw, and he had gone his godless way until now with old age and habits making him hard to change. Yet see him, a penitent, trusting, humble believer, nothing short of the grace of Almighty God. In our experience, most of us have not uh, received Christ as old people, as seniors. Uh, we've known Christ since we were a little younger than that, in most cases, Jason, since he was quite a bit younger than that. Um, but the effect is the same, regardless of your age. It changes you internally. If you accepted Jesus Christ, and we talked a little bit about this on Tuesday, if you accepted Jesus Christ and did not experience something after that, then it's very possible that you didn't get saved. So people are changed radically by their experience with Christ. And this chapter, as well as many we have read in Deuteronomy, is pointing forward to when God would do that. Okay, so we're going to read now Deuteronomy chapter 30. And yes, we will read the whole chapter, all 20 verses. The latter half of the chapter we already referred to in last week's sermon. Um, actually, not the latter half, the middle part, I guess you could say. And so we, we won't break it down heavily once we get there, but it's pretty straightforward anyway. So here we go. Chapter 30, verse 1 of the book of Deuteronomy. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So that's all one sentence, okay? So basically he's saying once you've been through it all, meaning you wandered, Remember, this is written to the people of Israel, so meaning you wandered away, you got into idolatry, whatever, and God banished you. Then you're out there scattered all over the world, and you get to thinking about the curse and the blessing. Notice the both. It's right. You're thinking about the curse and the blessing that God laid out before you. Okay. Then turn your hearts back to God. Then it says God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God is. Has scattered you. Now verse 4. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. So no matter how far they are, basically is what they're saying, I'll bring them back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Notice that their end, their end situation would be better than their father's situation who were already brought in by grace into the promised land and the holy land and the grace land. And now when they are brought back, after being shipped off into captivity, their end will be better than their father's end. That's pretty interesting. Verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love 
your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Notice that is an action. The, the person conducting the verb in that statement is God. God would circumcise their hearts. Right? It doesn't say that they would. They're called on to do that in a couple of other places in Scripture. But here it says that God would circumcise their hearts and the heart of your descendants. So now we have extending the goodness that God is offering them, not only to them, but to their sons. And the Lord your God will inflict on these curses, all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. So in other words, God's going to punish the enemies. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe. Remember, we studied that word observe a little bit on Tuesday, and it's to work, to do all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. So he brought them back. He's prospering them in all that they do. And there's a good long list there. Pretty much means everything. Just like he did with their fathers. Verse 10. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So there is a contingency. It's a choice that they have to make. Notice he's circumcising the hearts. First they turn to him. He circumcised the hearts. And now they must remain turned to him, if you will. Verse 11. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven that you would say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it and that we may observe it. And that's, I've been, talked about this last week about how we don't want to say it's hard to follow God because it's not really true, not according to the word anyway. 13, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. So we've got kind of two pairs there. We're not going to hammer them hard right this second. We'll come back to them in the points. Life and prosperity is one choice. The other choice is death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. So that's Notice that the life and the death of those two pairs that we read before was life and prosperity, death and adversity. So of those two pairs, life and death are elevated to be symbolic of both of the choices, life and death. Okay, The blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And real quick, just watch 20 right there. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days. Okay, so we've read the text We've talked a little bit about how when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in earnest, when they truly become a follower of God, there is an internal change, it is, and it is radical. Okay, 
But there are a few things I want you to see in here then that helps us to understand that the journey, if you will, does not stop at conversion or at the moment that a person becomes a Christian. The first thing is the grace of God leads to an offered choice. Let's be very realistic. These Israelites, they are already a people of God's grace. All right? They were in slavery, they were in darkness, they were stuck in Egypt, and God called them out. God chose them. God elected to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. He, in fact, he had already done so. He had brought them out of slavery and ignorance to come this far. Here, then, they are offered a choice. The warning that when they become idolatrous, they would face wrath. So, in other words, already being a people of grace, see the symbolism here, already being a people of grace, already chosen by God, already saved, if you will, they are now asked to make a choice. And that choice, then, will affect whether or not they are blessed, if you will, in the life that they live now following God, or if they are cursed, if you will. You say, oh, no, God could never curse a, a believer, right? Not somebody called by grace. Well, tell that to the generation that died in the desert that wasn't faithful to go in and take the promised land and they died in the desert, right? And they became symbolic of uh, the possibility of that occurring in the modern day church. It's easy enough for us to not remain faithful because the, frank, the, the truth of it is the world is in your face. The world is working on you. The world is always there. And, and there's a need for money and there's a need for time and there's a need for health and there's a need for love, right? Not the love that God talks about, but the romance and the, the flashy things of love in the world. And we get drawn into all of that, and we have, and all that's coming into our senses all the time. God says in his word very clearly to the Israelite people, being a people of grace, called by God, elected and chosen to come out of the darkness, out of slavery, into the promised land that I have provided for you, now make a choice. Now this offered choice is for believers. That's the second point. This offered choice is for believers. It's not for people who don't believe. These are people that have seen the amazing things that God had done. They saw the column of fire. They saw the clouds. They saw the, the parting of the Red Sea in, in some cases. These are people that have seen the incredible acts of God to what length God has gone to bring them out of darkness and slavery. These are not people who don't believe, right? And they're not people who have not been called. They're not people who have not received God's grace, so this is people who believe and have received God's grace, and then they're given this choice, an offered choice to believers. He says, I lay before you life and death. Look at verse 10 and verse 15 again. Verse 10 says, If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And then 15 says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. My goodness, in that they would recognize the curse and the blessing and in the lands that they would be shipped off to, make a choice to come back to God, God would again bring them back to this moment in time where they're, where they're able to make a choice. But right here it is for them, before ever their heart would turn, before ever they would drift. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. Written to believers. Written to people. who Now, I get it. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the re regeneration for the day to come. Right? This is not the New Testament church we're talking about. But there is something to be understood about here. 
how God deals with people who have seen it, how God deals with people who believe, how God deals with people who have been there. What does he do? Well, it's pretty clear and obvious from the first point. Grace of God leads to an offered choice. Now, does God have to offer you a choice? No. What do you deserve? Hell for an eternity? Well, let's just set that aside for a minute. Now I'm saved. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I no longer am going to get hell for eternity because grace saves through faith. I believe God gives me grace. Now I'm saved. Now I'm not going to hell for eternity. So now what do you deserve? So you think when you lie, you don't deserve hell. So you don't deserve anything, right? Now it was clear, as we talked about in the inspirational moment time, that God chastises those whom he loves. So what is laid before you now is a choice, a choice offered to believers, a choice between life and death, not death in the sense of you're going to die and go to hell, not death in the sense that you're going to be separated from God, but let's not be confused. Isaiah did say your sins have placed a barrier between you and God, and we assume that once you get saved, the barrier is pierced by Christ. But I want you to imagine in your mindset for a moment a barrier, like a wall, put up between you and God, and there is a hole in that wall that you can pass through, and you're you're being propelled toward that wall a thousand miles an hour. That's what life is like sometimes, isn't it? A thousand mile an hour toward that wall. And there you see a hole shaped like a man. Now Charlie's going, whew, good for me, because I'm small, right? So it's a man-sized hole. I'm going to fit through that hole pretty well. But you've got to line up, right? So you've got to line up to go through his torso or to go through. You could go like this, like he's stretched out on a cross. You can fly through that hole, and if you're smaller than him, you'll make it through. It's a man-sized hole. You've got to go through by Jesus. But if all of a sudden, while you're hurtling toward the wall a thousand miles an hour, you're being distracted by all these things of this life, and it's only at the last second that you decide to adjust yourself to be like Jesus to get through the hole, I submit to you, when you hit that wall, it's going to hurt. You might make it through. And people are living like they might make it through because this choice that has been offered to believers has been dismissed. God is so good, and God saved me, and God loves me so much that he's going to keep me from enduring any suffering, right? That's not the gospel. In fact, it's just the opposite. There is a gospel of suffering. They walked away and rejoiced that they were allowed to suffer like Jesus suffered. When you suffer, instead of going, oh, woe is me, God, and, and, and begging that something would be changed, there's nothing wrong with praying. Pray anything you want. Pray to God and ask him to change it. But always remember, it's his will, not our will. And so Jesus suffered, and he was God, for crying out loud. He didn't come down and then just get boop, zipped out of existence. He went through crucifixion and a whipping within each inch of his life the night before. He went through a horrible time where he prayed fervently so bad that the pores of his body broke open and poured out sweat. God did. God the man. And we think that we're going to get through it easy. That's not how it works. God has laid it out for us and offered a choice to believers. So I submit to you, choose life. But be aware, death is also possible. As a believer, as an eternal being, as a celestial being, elevated beyond the requirements of this life, now that you will arrive in heaven, but you can choose death. There are activities and things that you can get into that are actually, wait for it, not godly. They're not good for you. Not good for you, not good for the kingdom, not good for your family, not good for your soul. There's a book that I read and I went through with my pastor's network book called uh, Soul Keeping. And it likens our soul to a, a stream rolling down out of the mountains, a beautiful crystal clear stream. And there was an old stream keeper and he would always travel up into the mountains and he would remove any debris 
open up, you know, silt pockets and stuff and let the, the water flow freely, beautiful down from the mountains. And then he passed away. And pretty soon, the stream wasn't so pretty anymore. Don't you understand that the stream of your soul, which God, by his grace, has given back into your care, you're responsible for it, if you pollute it, it will not flow pretty. That's why the Bible says that it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean, because it's coming out your heart, it's coming out your soul. You are putting stuff out that shouldn't be possible. But if it's coming out of you, it's possible for a reason. And the reason is because what's inside you has been polluted. You have made a choice for death rather than life. Though you live, a choice for death rather than life. This choice is laid out for believers by the grace of God. It is a natural extension of the grace of God. Now as a celestial being who will spend eternity in heaven with God, what choice will you make in your days? Will you choose life or will you choose death? God would make their end better than those saved by grace in the first place. Did you catch that? These are folks who will come back from being scattered into the nations, believers who will come back from being scattered into the nations, turning their hearts back to God. God then will circumcise their hearts, theirs and their sons, theirs and their descendants, bring them back into the promised land, bring them back to where God wanted them in the first place, and then prosper them. Not only prospering them in the land in all those ways that he listed, but on top of that, circumcising their hearts and the hearts of their sons. He is a God of grace. That's absolutely true. He would choose to save everybody. In fact, he is only patient now with us in that men might all men might come to repentance. Not to repentance. Not slow as some men count slowness, but patient that all men might come to repentance. God wants to save everybody. He's literally appealing to everybody all day long, every day. When they look around and suddenly realize he was always there, they go, oh, you know what? That's what that quiet knocking was on the door of my heart. That's what happened to me when I got saved for months. Add on years, really. For the last six months, the, the knocking had become pretty loud. Like, Dan, Dan, I'm standing at the door knocking. But previous to that, before I started hearing the word preached or studying my Bible or anything like that, the knocking was, seemed to me to be pretty soft. But it really wasn't the knocking was soft. is that the video games were turned up. And the popular activities that I was involved in, working and, and spending money and Cedar Point and, and, and nothing wrong with any of all of that. But those activities were turned up to a level that the knocking could barely be heard. But when the knocking got loud enough, in my mind's eye, God's grace came in and saved my soul. But from God's grace coming in and saved my soul, from that moment on, I was on a railroad course to a choice. And really, it was a choice for every day. God is a merciful God. Now that you have grace and are saved and are going to heaven, why do you need God's mercy? Because you're too stupid to survive without it. I'm too stupid to survive without God's mercy on a daily basis. It can't be done. Because the choices come and the choices go, and we are designed to make a choice God's way. We are made to have a relationship with him. We're supposed to do it right. Do it the way he's given us to do it. He is a God of grace and a God of mercy. And boy, do we need that mercy after we receive that grace. Notice that this is more than obedience provided by God. This is circumcised hearts. Look again at verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God and all with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. 
In order that you may live. In order that you may live. In order that you may live. Now, as I said, in other places, they were told to circumcise their hearts. Right? Turn your heart over to God. And the commands of Moses, as were said in the middle of this chapter, not really all that difficult. But did they do it? No. But here it says God would do it for them. For who? For those who found themselves scattered, their families, their churches. They didn't have churches, but their faith families, let's say, drifting into idolatry and now called back and being called back, they would have circumcised hearts. Not only them, but their generations to come. God would bring them back. And they would be prospered in the kingdom that God had offered them. They would be multiplied in the kingdom that God had offered them. Three points. The grace of God leads to an offered choice. An offered choice for believers. And God would make their end better than those saved by grace alone. Post-choice. The outcomes are better. Then that brings us to the conclusion, and it's a doozy. It has been said, there are no grandchildren of God. I first said that in one of the first sermons I ever preached. I think maybe maybe like the tenth sermon I ever preached. There are no grandchildren of God. I wanted my children to be saved. I longed for my children to become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in earnest and for real. And let's not, let's not play games with it. But you can't do it for your children. They have to do it for themselves. It's true in the sense that each one of us must come to the realization of who God is to us. Salvation isn't on an individual basis, paid for by Christ, but on an individual basis. It's not about your practice of religion or religious steps or even disciplines, but it's about your personal relationship with God through Jesus. I get that. Consider, however, the implication here of a father who has repented and turned to the Lord, who truly has a circumcised heart now. It says not only will he have a circumcised heart, but it allows that a people may be returned to the land of God, where God had prepared for them, where God had promised them, and that they would come and it would be extended to their offspring. That's what it said. For you and your descendants. This choice has a purpose, right? So let's say I'm 21 years old and I accept Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. He accepts me. I believe and I receive. My heart is transformed. I am now a new believer. I am living for the Lord. Five years later, I'm only half living for the Lord. I'm barely living for the Lord. I'm all wrapped up in the things of the world. I don't cuss anymore. I don't tell lies anymore. I'm a pretty giving, serving, caring soul, generally speaking. So I'm definitely transformed internally. But as I travel throughout my day, most people wouldn't know it. Because there are people that look pretty good on the outside, even though they're not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a friend that caused a, a bit of a stumbling block for me because he was a professing atheist. And he was one of the nicest guys I knew for the ten, first 10 years of my Christian walk. Nicer than anybody in my church. As an atheist, he was nicer than most of us. So people don't get saved because you're nice or even gentle or kind or patient or loving or good or whatever because everybody has a motivation for that, whatever it is. Our motivation for all of those things is our circumcised heart, our profession of Jesus Christ, our following of the Lord. That's our motivation to be good. 
But others have other motivations to be good because they want to get the promotion, because they want you to like them back, because they're hoping you'll give them a fiver. Whatever. Right? And so now that me that's 21 years saved, but 26 not really living all that much for Jesus, have I chosen life or have I chosen death? Now I have a child in my 20s. By the time I'm 40, I've almost forgotten my mad, passionate desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not reading my Bible every day, just a few minutes here or there. Yeah, I go to church, I serve, I do things. People would call me in name, a Christian might even call me the name of the church. But my child has all kinds of reasons, just the same as I did, to be lured by the things of the world. Have I chosen life? After the grace that saved my soul, at that point in time, have I chosen life? And if I have chosen death rather than life, what do you think my son is going to choose? Here in this choice that comes after grace is a promise that it will extend to your descendants. You should be transformed from the inside out, focused on God, returning to the Lord, circumcised in your heart. And in so doing, God promises you life not only for you, but for your offspring. But the problem is so many Christians come to the Lord and they do not make this choice. There are lots of good things in the world. And you know how many of them will prosper you in eternity? Very few. Personal interactions, generally speaking. That's about it. And only in and as much as that personal interaction leads you or that other person closer to God. You can hug people all day long. And if there's no Jesus in it, everybody getting hugged is still going to hell. You can send cards. You can give Christmas presents. You can show up at their performances of whatever skill or talent or whatever. If you don't bring Jesus into those interactions, they are worthless. It's all worthless. And it's still along the road on the way to hell for anybody who does not have Jesus as their sovereign Lord and Savior. And Moses was telling them, in their case, that they needed to make a decision that day, and then if they failed to make that decision, which he was saying that they certainly probably would, then as they were pulled away and scattered throughout the world, away from the promised land that God had promised them, that they needed to make the same decision, and in making that same decision, receive a circumcised heart and be brought back to the promised land. When I preached the messages previously throughout the last three chapters of this, we talked about the promised land. We broke it down pretty thoroughly. We talk about the grace land and the holy land. We talked about how an individual might be singled out by God for wrath. We talk about people who come into the holy land and then God looks at them and says, you're not living for me. It's wrong. In fact, we even talked about the qualifier. We talked about poison fruit, bitterness of soul, and false speech. And those are the qualifiers in chapter 29, verses 18 and 19, by which a person will be singled out and pulled out of the promised land, the grace land, the holy land that God had given them. And he would eradicate, since he will blot their name out from the book of life. He will take them out. We're not talking about people who have been taken out. We're talking about a people who have remained part of the promised land, grace land, and holy land. But here, we're talking about an extension of the two-sided sign warning that I gave a couple weeks ago. The sign saying, don't go there. We talked about how God would remove the people of God for doing one thing, worshiping anything that is not God and not specifically authorized by God. Finally, then last week, we talked about how the commands of God through Moses point to Christ and are not far away or hard to fathom. That was verse 29. 
And Jesus actually said, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me because Moses was testifying of me, which is who we're reading now. So we understand that Jesus understood this circumcised heart, this return to the kingdom, the promised land, grace land, holy land, to be about him. That's what Moses is talking about. He's talking about Jesus. The times and the epics of the Lord will remain God's, but the things exposed to us, the things about Christ, the things about what God was doing to save souls and to, to bring hearts to him completely, let's just say it that way, he said, The things that I'm teaching you, they're not afar off. That's what I said. I jumped ahead, referenced some of this chapter right here to make the expectation of loyalty and devotion from his people complete. But again, offers so much more. He literally is offering so much more. Ezekiel said it this way, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, you'll get there, um, said, that he would take from their hearts the hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. In chapter 30, Moses is summarizing and he lays out the choice, even offering that father and their sons and generations to come could have a better end than all those who had gone before receiving God's grace. I mean, what is better than being chosen by God? Being chosen by God? And then choosing life. That's what's better. That's the whole of it. So while dads cannot control what a son decides, they can certainly influence their sons and not only make available the truth, but also make sure that they present God's word and faithfulness as the absolute best way. If whatever you're saying to your son does not build them up to be a follower of God, then shut your mouth. If whatever you're saying to your daughter, whatever you're saying to one of the kids in the church or at your job or at school or in the grocery store, if what you're saying does not lead a person, does not help them to recognize that this is the offer of God, that here, away from God, they can be circumcised in heart and truly saved and then, wait for it, and then make the choice for life the same. In so doing, seeking for God, a father may provide opportunity for his son. Through him, God will present the same choice. And from generation to generation, the exchange continues. See, if I give it to my son, then there's a chance he'll give it to my grandson, or maybe I still will because I might be young enough. And then my grandson may give it to my grandson's grandson if he's still young enough. And the same applies for women, wives, and mothers. Each time the choice is offered, if God is chosen, if life and prosperity are chosen rather than death and adversity, then the new generation can be blessed by God as he sees fit with his presence, with a special gifting, and with life abundant, and so much more. Indeed, now we've reached, we're talking about the present era, aren't we? Men of yesteryear have stayed the course, and some have not. God has visited wrath on men who had previously turned away. And some of those who had previously turned away 
later remembered the blessing and the curse and turned back to God. And Peter said this about those he was ministering to. He said, and God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. He was saying, the same is of the Gentiles is as of the Jews. And if they in their lostness, they in their darkness, they in their ignorance, they in their slavery are called by grace, they too can, wait for it, receive the choice. Not talking about them choosing whether or not to be saved. You understand, there's a whole doctrine on election and predestination that I'm not getting into and I don't care to. And we might not even all agree on it in this, in the, in this room. But what I'm saying to you is, God saved by grace this sinner. And God has now asked me to make a choice for life every day. And if I don't, I will still experience wrath. Not wrath that ends in hell because God saved me by grace. But wrath that ends in a less productive kingdom of God. Wrath that offers no promise for my offspring or my offspring's offspring. Romans 2.29 says this, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Do you know to whom you belong? And if you've been saved, you belong to the God of heaven. You're no longer a distant possibility. You've now been drawn close as a friend, as a child of God, as a member of the family. And as a member of this family, you've got to make a choice. You must choose life. The bottom line is, if you are here today because of your dad, then you owe your dad a big thank you because he participated in giving you this opportunity. If you are here because someone shared with you that was not your dad, then this is your opportunity to come back to the Lord and be grateful that God has said he will bring you back. You could strive all your life to get back to God and never make it. If that's not the object lesson that's delivered to us every single day, I don't know what is, but that's not what God says in this promise. What God says is that if you are scattered, lost amongst the nations, far from you find yourself far from God, even though by grace you were chosen by God, you find yourself far away, then choose life. Turn back to God and he will circumcise your hearts and those of your descendants. He will make you more prosperous in the kingdom of God than those who were first called by grace. Do you know that churches, whole churches, people of God and families, whole churches have died in order for us to be here today preaching and listening to the word, singing these songs that we sang, giving our tithes and offerings, teaching Sunday school. People who were no different than you and I, called by grace, who made a choice to life, died for their faith so that the faith would be proffered into a future generation that it eventually would come to the aisles of East Little Baptist Church, to me, so that I could be here today and make a choice. And they died. Men, women, and children massacred sometimes, probably to every last one of them, and a few may have escaped, and maybe no one escaped. And here we are, worshiping God, receiving his offer of forgiveness, and his willingness to make our end better than our beginning by no small margin, by an unbelievable margin. 
This is how much God loves us. To the point that I can say in, with absolute certainty, if you will choose life every day, you ain't seen nothing yet. What? He's not done. You're still breathing. You're still thinking. You're still capable. No matter how much you hurt, no matter how much you hurt physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever, it's all God. God's going to do it all. Now, is he going to make you rich? It's not about richness. This is not a physical, literal kingdom that we're coming into. It's not about actual cattle that we're going to take care of or sheep we're going to shear in the fall or crops we're going to plant. This is about the kingdom of God and us functioning as part of a promised kingdom, a grace kingdom, a holy land in which we have not been kicked out because we weren't stupid enough to be that disgusting to God. But here we are, and now we choose not idolatry. We choose life every day. The commands of the Lord, which aren't even really that hard to figure out. It might be kind of hard to do if you're not choosing life, because in not choosing life, you get wrapped up in death. You get wrapped up in slavery again. You get wrapped up in ignorance. There are people who choose not to worship God. Can you believe that? Saved people, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they choose not to worship God because maybe it's too much work, because they're afraid of what people will think of them, because they don't want to get dressed up. Check the room. We're not dressed up. Because they don't want to get out of bed by 11 on a Sunday. There are people who are choosing death after being saved. I'm not saying they're lost. I'm not saying they're losing their salvation. I'm explaining to you that they have the ability to choose life and they are choosing not to choose life. Grace leads us to a choice. It's not a choice of salvation. You, didn't, you might think you did, but you didn't choose to get saved. The God of heaven loves you, sent his only son to die for you Hallelujah. almost 2,000 years before you were born. To die for you almost 2,000 years before you were born. Put you exactly where you needed to be so that you would grope around for him and in finding him realize he was never far away in the first place. That's our God. He pursued us to the ends of Ohio and loved us so much that he saved our soul. Now the question is, that grace leads us to a choice. A choice in daily living. A choice in who we will be for. I'll give you another illustration, and we're very near the end. Three men. John Newton, Lewis Weatherford, and Samuel Preston. This is not a parable, it's an actual event. It's not my story, but it's an actual event that took place. They were out to find the best that life has to offer. Willing to try anything, they were now on their way to New York City to paint the town red. The whole week ahead of them, they were anticipating some high times. They had money, position, and culture. The only thing they wanted was action, and they were now ready to get it. As the Silver Star glided to a stop at Grand Central, three men, full of excitement and frivolity, stepping off the train into a busy world, amidst the confusion, the three jovial men were able to hail a cab, direct the driver to the Ambassador Hotel, where they wanted to board, which means stay, this is a little older, the cabbie promptly took them to their destination, received his tip, and disappeared into the throng of cars. As the cab drove off, the three men just stood on the pavement, staring up the side of the 29-floor building. They were amazed at the sight of such a tall structure. This is previous to cell phones, by the way. Upon entering the hotel, they were greeted by a bellhop who took their bags and led them to the main desk. At the desk, the clerk asked them what type of room they wanted, and the three men replied, Give us the best you have. The clerk looked up at the register told the men that the only one that was left was on the top floor. It had a TV, two cushioned chairs, four beds, 
within, uh, within, within a minute, the men said a few words to each other and quickly decided to take it. The key was handed over and the bellhop led them to the elevator. After arranging their belongings in the proper order, the three men put on their tweed suits, left the keys at the desk, and were off to see New York City's high spots. Hours went by and the three began to, to get weary, so they headed back to the hotel and at the lobby desk they were told the elevator had developed some complications and was not able to take them upstairs. They were given the alternative of either walking up 29 flights of steps or sleeping in a small, less luxurious room on the second floor. The three huddled together, decided to take the long walk upstairs and enjoy the comforts of their own room, so up they started. The first few flights went quickly and easily, and the three companions were joke joking and having a good time. Each flight seemed a little bit longer, but the men kept pressing on. Five, six, seven floors were passed. Each one meant that they were one flight closer to the top. The men, already weary from a hard night, began to slow down, and the floors dragged by, by slower each time. The 11th, 12th, 13th floor was passed. Almost halfway there, said Lewis. The other just grunted, and they pushed on. 17, 18. They wondered if they would ever reach the top. On the 20th floor, Sam sat down and said he couldn't go on. After resting a few moments, the others finally persuaded him to try it. After all, only nine floors left, and then those nice soft mattresses and fried chicken and, and so on they went. Each flight seemed like a, a mile, and it seemed as if it took an eternity to get there. All three men were now on their knees, crawling step by step in hopes of reaching the 29th floor. Just one more to go. Slowly they proceeded, inch by inch, until John shouted out that he could see the room. Only eight more steps, and then about 15 feet down the hall. Which his added <coughs> with his added inspiration, each fellow put all the energy into it that he had, and to their relief, they were all on the last floor. They had reached their goal now. As soon as the door would be opened, they would enjoy all the luxuries which had spurred them on during their climb. Sam was the first to come to the door, so he reached down into his pocket for the key. To Sam's amazement, the key wasn't there. He asked John if he had uh, if he had it, but John said that Lewis must have it. They both looked at Lewis, but all he had were several empty pockets. Here they were on the 29th floor, just inches from what they considered heaven, and yet they could not get in. They had forgotten to get the key. If you go your own way and declare as worthy things of this life, false gods, idols that will surely try to attract you. You may well find yourself stuck in the hallway between God's grace and the great life of a follower of God. God offers that new life to believers. God offers that choice to believers. Real quick, I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 2. I wrote it down. I wasn't sure if I was going to read it, but I feel prompted to do so. So Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, and we must be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Grace leads to a choice. Will you choose life? Grace leads to a choice offered for believers. So if you're in this room and you've accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and he's accepted you, you've believed and received Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're already saved. I'm not talking about going to heaven. I'm asking you, the same as Moses was asking them, the same as every repentant father would ask every repentant son, will you choose life? Day in and day out, will you choose life? If you do, God will make your end better than those saved by grace alone. I'll ask the praise team to come forward at this time and lead us in our closing song. This is a hymn of invitation. If you know that you're here on either A, you had not previously accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've not become a Christian, not become a follower of the Lord. A Lord is somebody who tells you what to do and you do it. A Savior is somebody who paid the price for your sins. If you know you have not done so before today and you want to do that, then you do that now. Even while I'm still talking and then when we sing, you respond to that's me. I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I will do as he wants me to do. I will serve him for the rest of my days. If, on the other hand, you came in here already a Christian, but you know you have not chosen life, you've been making wrong choices, you've been after something in the world, or you've been refusing to sort of submit your life to God and let him lead, or rather live through you, then you repent today. Repent, and no matter how far you've gone, scattered as far as you possibly could be, no matter how far you're gone, it says he will return you. He will return you to the kingdom of God. He will prosper you in a way that you cannot believe in the kingdom of God. Not by money, but by his presence and an abundant life. Would you stand with me and sing this song then? And if God is leading you to respond, you respond. Choose life. Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus. On this next verse, if God is calling you to be baptized or calling you to make this your home church, calling you to a specific ministry, this is your opportunity to respond and to say, That's me. God is speaking to my heart. And I want to make that my choice.